This is Inside the Box. Hello everybody, my name is Trevor, and I am here with my great friend David Blakesley. David, how are you doing today? Doing doing fine, uh, just, you know, another wonderful Saturday morning. Uh, spring is starting to show itself here in Michigan, <laughs> but we did have snow on the ground before the sun came up, so <laughs> oh, it's boy. Uh, taking its time. But anyways, yeah, it's great to be back, and uh, yeah, been a bit of a whirlwind here as we and do mm-hmm. our third episode in the last what five weeks so uh but it's been been a fun experience i've been enjoying this box set and I'm looking forward to kind of wrapping up this series with you yes indeed we've got two films to talk about today ahmed el manuni's trances and then we will round this up with with the one that you hadn't seen yet and i just can't wait That's to hear right. what you thought but uh kim ki young's <laughs> oh, <yeah>. the housemaid <laughs> So, um, and and then at the end of the episode, just so listeners know, we'll probably stick around for a little bit just to talk about the set as a whole. You know, mm-hmm. we, we usually do that with these episodes um, when we do, you know, more of the typical box sets that have maybe three films. We'll talk about the box itself and how it feels and what we like about the whole set. So we'll, we haven't done that yet with these because we've been, you know, we'll only finish up the set today, but we'll do a little bit of that. But Again, we will. We can just jump right in and start yeah. talking about the first movie in the set, the last, um, you know, double Blu-ray disc. Uh, starts with Trances. It's a 1981 film from Morocco that goes. Oh, you know, it's kind of like a music documentary uh, about yeah. a, mm-hmm. a very, you know, groundbreaking. Um, from my research, now this is I am absolutely ignorant about most of this. In fact, I'll just say all of it. Yeah, um, sure. this was yeah. this film has always been my only exposure to Nas El Gwain, which is the name of this band. I've heard it referred to as the Rolling Stones of, the, of Arabic music or Moroccan music. Um, you know, just a very uh, apparently famous band. Again, it makes me feel bad when I watch these and see I'm exceptionally insulated. And have not branched out to get to know this kind of music or anything like that. So the, this this film is is my introduction. It was back in 2013 when I first watched it um, to Nasa El Gwain and to Arabic music, you know, modern Arabic music in general. And so I'm assuming you're kind of a pro. At, uh, oh. at this one, David. <laughs> uh, well, you assume very generously, but uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I won't say that I'm any more, you know, significantly familiar with this particular genre of music, but, you know, I have, I have appreciated world music for a long time. And, and uh, I think about where I was at in 1981, um, as listeners to my various podcasts know I used to be in a punk rock band in San Francisco and mm-hmm. 1981 was kind of our peak year as it you know this was a band called Church Police and uh, I just happened to be living in the Bay Area at that time in the late 70s when punk rock was kind of breaking out you know the Sex Pistols the Clash and Devo and Elvis Costello and you know a lot of other you know really influential bands I could probably go down a whole long tangent of storytelling there but yeah, 81 and 82, and that was pretty much the end of our band. I kind of moved on in other directions and and left all that behind. Um, but that was a pretty pivotal year in my life and one where I was kind of, in a sense, living the dream of, 
you know, I won't say being a rock star, but at least making music and performing in public and getting involved in the club scene. And so, you know, that was kind of my point of connection with this particular film because it was released that Mm -hmm. same year and it was the energy and the vigor and the vitality of the music and how the, the band and the audience kind of formed this emotional and even kind of physical bond over the, the, the pulsating rhythms and the, you know, the, the, the chanted vocals and, and just kind of the, the raw emotion, even if, uh, even if you can't understand what they're saying, and even if you're reading the subtitles, I don't know that it fully conveys the, you know, emotional impact, but it's just the sound itself that kind of delivers the punch of this film. And so, yeah, and, and world music, you know, was becoming more of a known thing in the early 80s you know artists like peter gabriel and and uh brian eno and and others were incorporating uh, david byrne from talking heads were were looking at these different time signatures and different instrumentations paul simon i guess i got to give him some credit as well um you know there were a number of, of of western artists who were looking at other cultures other uh musical traditions and so I can sort of see why this film trances, uh, you know, made an impact uh, within select circles, and especially with the uh, with the uh, director Martin Scorsese, uh, who was happened to just hear this one night as he was doing some editing, and uh, th- this cable station was playing it over and over on a loop while they were editing through the wee hours of the night, and that soundtrack just got to him, and that became the. Uh, you know, first uh, film restored by the the Film Foundation mm-hmm. of this World Cinema Project. And so and Scorsese's very personal bond with this film, I think, is what kind of led to its current placement in the in the collection mm-hmm. here and now this morning our conversation. So <laughs> Thanks, yeah, <Martin. laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, he made it all possible. But yeah, what a what a fascinating uh, slice of film and uh, a glimpse into a a way of life and a musical tradition that I'm sure I would have never encountered in this much depth or detail if it weren't for this particular movie and and uh, and now our our opportunity to talk about it. Well, and I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, I, I read it somewhere and I can't remember exactly where it might have been in the liner notes or something like that. That Scorsese used one of their songs in in the Last Temptation of Christ. Uh, yeah, either which, he used their music or he wanted that style of music. I, I can't remember which. But yeah, definitely uh, Peter Gabriel did the soundtrack to that film. And he's one of the people I was mentioning mm-hmm. as, you know, incorporating uh, world music uh, rhythms and instruments into their, you know, pop rock compositions. Mm-hmm. Well, and one of the other nice things about this is that there are two films from the African continent in this box set. We mm-hmm. talked about Tuki Buki earlier and, you know, it's different country, different region, lots of different, you know, differences there. Um, but these are potentially the, the very first African films I ever saw ever. And I've gone on now with, um, w- after watching Tuki Buki, you know, they, they, they have released more films um, from Senegal which has been really nice to continue to get to know both the the films and what they're going, what their, uh, you know, creators are working toward and trying to convey as well as that region 
and you know these these former French colonies. And then we've got this film from Morocco, which you know it it takes place uh, some of it in Casablanca, you know. So it feels like something um, I I know something about. Of course, I know <laughs> nothing about it. Um, but it, yeah. the reason that we know something about this, or at least feel like we do, is the way that this particular region has been portrayed in our own Western cinema and music and things like that with uh, this North African city and country that I really appreciated the, the essay in here by Sally Shafto that talks about, Hey, you know, this is not the first Moroccan film, you know, that wasn't made, (laughs) not made by, you know, someone coming in and and trying to, uh, you know, dramatize, the the war or something like that you know this is not the first film made by moroccans and kind of going through the films that were made in during the french uh colon, co- colonialization time period and some of the films made after um the the you know they left and and it was an independent country and i haven't seen any more of these films i don't know anything about them and so I'm hoping that there might be an occasion that this time you know again I first watched this back in 2013 and was quickly going through the set but of all of them this is probably the one that made me think I have not been doing anything else to get to know this region of cinema and I right. wonder what there is I can I can do because of course this this film gives some good insights into this period in 19 the late 70s you know, of this band and it shows the, you know, as a documentary, it shows some of the land and some of the city um, in particular, the poorer areas where these, most of these band members grew up. And it, it just, it, it made me think, man, I, I really want to get to know more of this North African cinema from the perspective of people who lived it. Um, yeah even though this particular film is, is a, is a music documentary. I, I love that it did that for me this time around. Yeah. I think music is kind of the, the hook here because it does make it very accessible. In fact, these uh, performances, there, there are some that were recorded in Morocco, but there's, there's one that's in Tunisia and another one that's actually in Paris. I think the one that's kind of the more th- uh, theatrical type of setting mm-hmm. uh, is a Parisian exhibit. So, so Manuni, the director clearly had, you know, connections to the European cinema scene. If you, and, and while you were talking, I actually went to the world cinema uh, project page, which I think is linked in our show notes. And yeah. there is another El Manuni film uh, called Aliam Aliam uh, from Morocco from 1978. So that might be a more typical type of um, offering of, of Manunis. I mean, I don't know that he did a lot of musical documentaries, but I <laughs> well, it came see, up a lot yeah. in reading mm-hmm. about this film. Sure. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's an Algerian film called Chronicle of the Years of Fire. Now these are films that have not been released by Criterion. And as far as I know, have not been made available on their streaming service either. So, uh, you know, I was thinking, boy, if I'm to get to know anything more about Moroccan cinema, I'm going to have to go on a very intentional search mm-hmm. and, and definitely probably step outside of, uh, you know, the usual uh, pathways that, that uh, I access, which would be like the Criterion Channel or maybe some of the other streaming services, Ovid or Mubi or whatever. Maybe mm-hmm. maybe they get a little bit into that. But, yeah, you definitely have to go on, a, on an intentional pursuit to track some of these down. 
And again, I don't know how much the World Cinema Project makes these films available, uh, you know, just for home streamers. I think if you want to book this film as the website invites you, <laughs> that means you're going to be showing it in a the theater and you're going to have to pay a, a significant fee and hopefully recoup some of that uh, by paid admissions, you know. So, um, you know, let the let the quest uh, proceed. We'll, we'll see where that goes. But it is very Look- interesting. Go ahead. Yeah. We should do an inside the box special exhibition. You there know. we go. Yeah, we'll rent out one of the big big theaters <laughs> in Chicago, and uh, <laughs> yeah, but you know, I mean, the, the, we're 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 just raking in the dough with this. Oh, so we, for we sure. Should, we should know. probably return a little bit to the to, to everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Something for the patrons there, right? But but uh, you know the, the music, the music and the performance, and and the, again that that kind of rhythmic uh, pulsating. Uh, kind of sensual quality mm-hmm. is what what you know transcends maybe some of the more obscure uh cultural barriers that that exist between you know us western viewers and a, maybe a more traditional moroccan tale uh this is the story of a band that's it's uh you know got behind the scenes interviews it's showing the band doing their music in different contexts you know the, the opening scene is in this kind of large stadium and it's it's pretty riveting i found it quite exciting just because the the energy and the enthusiasm of the audience is is clearly you know and it's almost all men in fact it may be entirely men it may be even a sort of a segregated event maybe women are either not allowed in or, or put in a very special section of the of the crowd. So there's a lot of testosterone. It has kind of that soccer match feel or kind of almost like a, a heavy metal concert, um, you know, with the exception of the, uh, you know, there's there's no mosh pit. There's, there's very heavy security. Mm-hmm. These guys are like in uniform mm-hmm. and they're surrounding the stage. And even with all of that presence of, uh, you know, presumably, you know, armed, uh, guards uh, protecting the band. There's a few uh, souls who are just overwhelmed by the power of the music, and then they rush up on stage just to <laughs> just to give the the musicians a hug. You know, just to kind of forge that connection even stronger until they're pried away by the the men in uniform. <laughs> there, but it, yeah, what what did you think about just kind of that that opener, just to kind of draw us in and and learn more about who these people are and, and what is it that drives the crowd to such a frenzy. I had to pay very close attention to the words that they were singing because, again, the the music itself is so foreign to me mm-hmm. that it it doesn't strike the same emotions. You know, I don't I right. don't get the this rapturous feeling of you know this is really pulsating in my soul. It does create kind of a trance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, yeah, you absolutely. know, and, and it. It sound, but it mostly, and again, this is me admitting to my ignorance and not in a mm-hmm. proud way, but in a, just hopefully an honest way uh, to show some effort to, to change it. Um, it. It sounds foreign. It sounds like music you, you hear when a movie that we w- might watch in the West tries to make someone sound foreign. And so I was thinking, okay, what instruments are they playing? You know, some that I recognize and some that I don't. Um, and I did see that they, they're using some Western, more Western in- instruments like a banjo, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but what are they singing about? And I was pretty, you know, surprised again that the mo- most of their lyrics are about uh, things like freedom, not in a not in a patriotic way, but in an individual, like, reaching out and, and breaking through some of these 
um, you know, forces that that hold you down. And it, but but in it, as I say that, I start to feel like I'm right, you know, talking about some teenage band, you know, here in the U.S. And that's not it. it <laughs> yeah, it's much yeah. more lofty and poetic. It is. Mm-hmm. It's more like a poet would mm-hmm. be talking about, um, you know, the need for some kind of revolution for for freedom. And I thought, wow, this is really interesting to to listen to these lyrics, um, see the people, um, you know, so excited about it. And you're right to give them a hug, not to go up and give them a high five or, you know, just, you know, sit at their feet, but to just give them a hug. Like, this is my friend. You know, you're singing something beautiful about our, our relationship. Mm-hmm. But then you have these guards there and you see them throughout and it's like, wow, what? what is going on here? Like, is this dangerous for them to be singing these, these lyrics in this setting? You know, are they, are they potentially talking to the the masses who are about some kind of revolution? And it never settled down and goes into that. I think the film probably deliberately gives us a little bit of that flavor while trying to stay within bounds like the band had to. You know, yeah, these, yeah. these people, they can, they can go so far and then they, they can't go farther. You know, they, they can't, they can't actually <laughs> incite some kind of revolution. Um, it will be shut down, um, you know, and so I kind of kept wondering, are the guard, the guards are there to protect them? Um, and I'm sure by this time, you know, the band has been going on for a decade and they're very popular. I, I, I doubt that they were like, well, we've got to watch the band as well. Um, you know, they probably showed that they could stay in the lines a little bit. But I, I was pretty, pretty surprised this time through because, again, my memory of this film is just sitting there kind of watching it bleary eyed yeah. um, as these, <laughs> yeah. this trance music's going on and listening to these artists talk about how even if they couldn't play art or couldn't play music, you know, if someday that was shut down. So it's a, it's something on their mind, but if that was ever shut down, they couldn't play music, they lost an arm, they'd still be artists. You know, the one yeah, of them would yeah. write, the other one would do drama, and um, I thought that that was all really interesting. But I'd kind of forgotten about this more revolutionary political part of this film that really, to me, is right there, mm-hmm. but stays under the surface and I is introduced in that first scene. So. Yeah, I think the lyrics seem to me kind of to be an airing of grievances, uh, not only just the personal struggles that they're singing about that maybe audience members can relate to, but even, you know, the plight of the Arab peoples, you know, not even of any particular nation. Yeah, that's true. Arabs, the the Northern Africans, the Middle Easterns, uh, people who, uh, you know, are still uh, dealing with the aftermath of colonialism and what they would see as the subjugation and even maybe humiliation of their culture by Western powers who come in with maybe a superior military technology or just the forces of commerce and, you know, the control of natural resources. Uh, you know, you, you can't set aside slavery and, and just the whole kind of forceful oppression of, uh, of an entire people uh, who, you know, are perhaps, you know, made to feel inferior or at least have those messages of inferiority or being second class thrust upon them. I, I feel like that's kind of the the heartbeat of this film as far as the content of the music and also the style because the the instruments, I mean, that was the other thing that kind of 
kind of blew my mind when you actually look at the instruments it's like yeah you mentioned the banjo it's it's a fretless banjo so it's not you played in the same way that your your local bluegrass uh you know group or country music artists mm-hmm. might use the banjo but um uh, they're they're using the strings the other stringed instrument i i won't even begin to try to um <laughs> name them but it's kind of like a three-stringed bass uh, you know where uh, it's just a, a primitive little wooden box the 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 neck of it is like a stick it's like a rounded it's almost like a bamboo reed or something like that and and then the the percussions is one guy playing these two drums with little sticks and another guy who's playing just kind of a almost like a tambourine except it doesn't have the bells around the edge and they're producing this colossal sound and it's like wow that's really and and of of course the the vocals are going constantly there's kind of a call and response uh thing happening there i'm sure the the audience is singing along or at least many of them are uh, because these are the kind of songs that just kind of get you to lift your voice and sing along and express these powerful emotions so you know inside what we hear on the soundtrack is just the mic'd you know uh, instruments and vocals, I'm sure the, the whole arena was just full. I mean, the, the physicality of the of the sound and the heat, the emotion, the sweat, the, the collective thing that was going on there, I'm sure was was really powerful and even potentially explosive. I think that's what the security was there for, is because the the emotions that are stirred up by this music. And again, this is this is very traditional music, which was different than a lot of the more commercial uh, Moroccan pop groups might have been doing at this time in an effort to try to assimilate or to fit into kind of Western commercial styles. This is kind of like roots music, uh, you know, instrumental, acoustic, uh, very heartfelt, very genuine, authentic style of music that these young Moroccan men and Tunisian and and others uh, in that part of the world say, yeah, these are my guys, or I can relate to this. This is the music of kind of our, of our heritage and our, and our tradition. And to, to validate all of that uh, also, but also on a very large scale, you know, uh, in this arena setting was, it was a pretty powerful thing. And I, I think that's kind of, the launching pad, but then we see the band doing its music in smaller contexts as well. Uh, whether that's, you know, a, a paid performance where you buy a ticket and go to the show, or if you're just in the community on the street, uh, or in some of these traditional ritual settings where there seems to be some kind of, um, even more time honored thing going on, something that maybe musicians like them have been doing for, centuries you know and and that was mm-hmm. just a, a fascinating glimpse because these guys are pop stars they are kind of you know famous faces and and you you get to know the personalities of these four guys i think that's where another analogy to like the rolling stones or beatles comes in because it's not they're just anonymous guys making music they each have their own kind of individual appeal and style and they 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 play a certain role within the group mm-hmm. um you know the, the a group which guy, has already yeah. suffered a loss and so there's yeah. also that identity yeah. that comes yeah. out in their response to that people must have felt even more connected to them because they had lost one of their founding band members in the mm-hmm. i think 1974 or something like that right he was only with them for a few years i mean the rolling stones have that with brian jones their, their early guitarist and kind of one of their 
musical innovators. He introduced a lot of unique instruments and styles. And then the Stones kind of moved on without him after he became unstable and, and ultimately passed away. And the Stones went on to bigger and greater things after that. But, you know, the founder was was no longer there, although the, the, the presence of that shadow was still accompanying this group, uh, Nassau Gawain, as they moved forward. So, yeah, there's there, you, you really get a lot of backstory, uh, you know, at least enough to sort of put this in a context. This, this is a group that was going through some drama of its own. You could even sense that there may have been some little tensions mm-hmm. within the band, you know, <laughs> because I think what Omar, the one guy, he's a little bit more uh, sarcastic. And there's a Garby or Larby. Uh, he's the percussionist. He's the one who's the dreamer and the mystic and has these visions. And he's <laughs> kind of, kind of put down a little bit, or at least kind of checked up, you know, like, you know, you're getting so lost in your visions, go take a walk, you know? And uh, so, yeah, so you, you get a little bit of that flavor of, of, these artists who are working and collaborating and creating together. But again, it just goes back to the, the, the power of the music and uh, this introduction to a world that is, is very different than, than even the, the pop entertainment that so many of us are familiar with. And yet you sort of see some elements of that kind of spilling over, you know, as they become mm-hmm. a, kind of a large scale phenomenon gain a following and and travel the world and and bring their music to the masses and speaking of differences you know they don't look like rock stars they don't look like pop stars they they look like you're the the neighbor yeah (laughs) no yeah and and even when they're playing in a group like in let's say that they're just sitting down somewhere i'm imagining in casablanca and there are people, passersby who know the music and sit down to maybe start to, to pound, you know, dance or to drum their own beat and mm-hmm. sing with them. The, the only way I know who they are relative to those other people is that I've recognized their faces from when they're performing and doing these things. They otherwise look, yeah. you know, like anybody else. They don't wear flashy clothes. They don't have, you know, they don't have that style that looks like we're, we're, we have to set ourselves apart and make sure people know we're we're rock stars we we wear things differently or you know we we've transcended all of this they seem to rely on that connection to their roots you know not just through the music but through their appearance as well and it's it's interesting to see them up on stage just you know like you know the one guy playing with the little like pencils (laughs) is just sweating (laughs) profusely you know oh yeah they they look very they look very like we can't hold this in, you know, this is not a show. This is a, this is a, I don't want to, I don't mean religion in the sense of Arabic or Muslim, but it's, it's almost like more of a spiritual experience for everybody, uh, body and soul Mm -hmm. as Mm -hmm. as they're playing rather than just, you know, a performance or just a a show, you know, I mean, yeah, it does take place in an arena, but this is not Mm -hmm. arena rock in that kind of way. They're not, you know, launching fireworks or bringing out, you know, big props or, or little, you know, stone hinges or, you know, they're not doing that kind of stuff. (laughs) Right. They're they're just up, up there playing the music because that's what is central to them and to their ethos, you know, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. sure that there's some deliberations behind all of that to make it stay this way. And I don't know where they went from here. 
Yeah, that's um, a fascinating question to think. You know. how, how did this film impact the group's own development? Did mm-hmm. it did that feed the egos and sort of you know splinter things? You know, I probably should have done a little bit more homework, and it's been a busy week for me, so <laughs> I'm really just responding from just the the, the yeah. film itself rather than the, the wider background or context that sometimes I like to try to deliver. But uh, I don't know where they, where where they went from here. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I, there there is that other uh, scene um, where I think it's just Abdul Rahman. He's he's typically I think he's like the bass player. He's the guy who plays the, that three stringed uh, boxy guitar type of object. Um, but there's that one where he's kind of sitting um, in a more of like a robe, kind of more like an older style of garment. And there's a bunch of people on either side of him flanking him. And they're playing these kind of metal, I guess I'll just call them percussion or they're almost like castanets, but there's like, you know, two on top and two on the bottom. And they just kind of clank together in this kind of rhythmic way. And there's a woman who's dancing in front of them. And I don't know if she is like inhaling fumes from hashish or uh, just an incense but it seemed mm-hmm. like it was probably hash and you know that's where the trancy thing really takes over and so this is you know this is probably not a performance for money this is probably uh maybe it's an annual or so, some sort of a traditional type of rite that they're going through so that that just takes this music to a a, a different level and and uh, really yeah again just grounds this in uh, a, a history and a, and a tradition that is, you know, pretty exciting to think about, but also feels pretty foreign and, and kind of exotic. Uh, but again, we're tapping into something that that almost feels like an ancient, uh, long-standing right, and this is kind of the, just the current manifestation of in the moment of this style of music and dance and the you know the, the elevation and the spiritual uplift that comes from being part of this whether you're one of the people clanking the the symbols or people dancing around or maybe there's people who are just observing and just you know getting into the 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 power of the of this vibe that's being established here i mean we see that one guy towards the end where he's he is dancing almost to the point of exhaustion. I mean, there's somebody holding him up by the belt to stop him from dropping over. And, and finally, he's smiling it, away. Oh yeah, he's he's definitely feeling it, you know. And again, I, I it, it reminds me, you know, even though this is not at all what I would consider punk rock, you know, but back in those days when you would just, you know. I, I was never a very accomplished musician. I'll say that. That's one of the reasons I decided to ultimately drop out. I just never got the hang of playing the guitar <laughs> and advancing in any way. But I was an, I was good enough to make a lot of noise, and we had a great bass and drum section. And, you know, there is something pretty extraordinary being on the stage and working up a room and seeing the audience go into this kind of a frenzy, you know, and whether it's a punk rock mosh pit or people dancing and and kind of f- almost flailing around, um, you recognize that that music sort of drove him. It took him to this kind of altered state, and it's it's a it's a very powerful and I would even say kind of an addictive sensation to be able to summon that type of energy and see how it impacts people, as well as creating the music itself. Is you know I still have a lot of memories from. that fairly brief time in my life where I was able to do that. And it is, it's, it's a pretty unique sensation to sort of create this sound and it 
you see the impact that it has on people. And I think that's where these, these men are, they have something to express, but I think they also enjoy just being part of this dynamic situation that where, where the music that they put out there just kind of turns people on. That's a, that's a very, it just, it's just a very profound experience to have and to see happen and, and to know that you're good at it and that you can bring these people uh, into a, a pretty special and memorable place and experience. Well, I, and I've been, I've been looking forward to getting some of your insights. You were, you yeah. were the music man <laughs> yeah. of, 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 oh boy, that, that was not meant to be a, well, um, a, no. a, a, a look at the, the next film, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You, you know, you, I know your experience. I know your, your performance history and, and yeah. you play, you know, part of your, your persona on TikTok now is, is sure. showing old records and, and yeah. put them on and, and, you know, usually Beatles, which, which well, I definitely that's, thought of I'm a just, lot with this. I'm just but... working my way alphabetically through my collection. So oh, they just okay. happen to be, yeah, I'll be. I've got a few You're not Beatles just record. the Beatles guy then. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> I will leave them behind soon enough. <laughs> but gotcha. but yeah, yeah, music's been a very um, important part of my life. And, and definitely when I was younger, especially, I mean, I could totally relate. I mean, I've, I've been to, you know, arena rock concerts, heavy metal concerts. I got into you know, tr- techno music, which is a different type of trance music, you could say, uh, electronica and, you know, Things like the Chemical Brothers, um, uh, bands like Spiritualized with uh, kind of that heavy kind of shoegaze noise component where, it, you know, the sound just kind of overloads your senses. I, I had to ask you, Trevor, have you ever let yourself go to music like like you see this where, where you're kind of getting your whole body into it? There's another scene where there's a, I mean, I it's a young woman who's just basically yeah, her whole is. body is just thrashing around and she is so deep into it it's 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 pretty electrifying even if i'm just sitting there on my couch just kind of nodding my head <laughs> in my a trance like, yourself yeah yeah I, I can feel it sister <laughs> i've been there i mean I'm, I'm i'm a little bit past those years now to, to be uh you know flailing my body around like that but i but i know the feeling you know i mean the the most i ever had was would have been in the 90s going to you know some uh, mosh pits and things like that sure. i did yeah. i did do that a you know a handful of times and you know, yeah, I enjoyed it. It was yeah. it was interesting, you know, because I think before that, before I'd ever participated and gone to something like that, it would have been like, "What are they doing? That's so dumb!" You know, it looks dangerous. Yeah. And yeah, then yeah, when you're in the when you're in the the moment, it it just kind of fits. Um, yep. It's still yep. dangerous and dumb in many ways, oh, yeah. but uh, <laughs> yeah, it's but a, yeah, a rite uh, of passage, you could say. It's kind of a young sure. man's thing, you know, just to kind mm-hmm. of go out there and, and throw it around, you know. I remember leaving feeling, you know, both uh, energized and physically depleted at the same time, you know, with arms just uh, from trying to to both protect whoever I was with and myself, um, as well as make sure I'm doing my appropriate degree of shoving back, you know, (laughs) Mm -hmm. just being completely, completely worn out, but also just being kind of exhilarated. And, um, but yeah, very different, I'm sure. And and that was singing about who knows what kind of stupid things, you know, it wasn't yeah. actually singing about the, these more, you know, pertinent, I think, cultural liberation um, and uh, resurgence kinds of things that, that this particular band, Nasa Gawain is, is playing. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I will, I won't connect to it entirely, but, but yeah, I guess I can see the tendency and, and appreciate that. 
Yeah, well, and I think you know the, these these performers, whether they're you know mainstream pop acts, uh, underground, obscure indie bands, punks, metalheads, or, or Nasal Gawain, you know the the, the lyrics uh, are a way of connecting with your audience, of expressing whatever's on their mind, whether that's anger, rage, self pity, depression, yearning, longing. I mean, you know, when a when a when a musical uh, performer puts words to the songs you know to the lyric to the melodies then then that th- there's should be something to say something that that you know gets people's attention and and you know gives them something cognitive beyond just the the primal power of the of the rhythms and and the other sounds that that, that kind of permeate the atmosphere so in this case you know you do have a a a group that is speaking to the concerns of a society and morocco i think was somewhat recently liberated maybe in the previous decade or whatever uh, but you know they're they're mm-hmm. they're trying to find their way in this kind of uh, new interface with western culture where they want to be uh, approaching uh, europe and and the west as, as equals as as partners or at least saying this is our culture we have nothing to be a, apologetic about nothing to be ashamed of no no reason to feel like ours is less developed or more primitive or inferior in any way and yet at the same time that may be their aspiration but they're not being accepted always that way or they still have to take a back seat when it comes to who controls the natural resources in this land you know maybe we're not under the power of a colony uh but but we are still beholden to multinational corporations who hold development rights and contracts so yeah we can elect our own leaders or we can choose who we say is the 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 boss of the country but we still have to take the leftovers it seems from the you know the economics and 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 then there's the cultural stuff going on where uh, you know, they're, they're, they're just looked down upon or they're, or they're seen as kind of backwards or, or, or ignorant. And, uh, and I, I have to acknowledge that, you know, I, I, although I would never say I, I view these cultures with contempt, um, the idea from a Western perspective that they just haven't quite caught up to us yet, whether that's technologically or in terms of, um, you know, their, their, sort of cultural attitudes, egalitarianism and freedom of speech and human rights and all of that. I mean, it's, it's very easy to hold those biases um, against cultures in Africa or Asia or other parts of the world where, uh, you know, they, 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 their practices are different, you know, their, their regard for how people ought to get along with each other uh, maybe is rooted in more of a patriarchal or a, an older style of tradition and um and they don't see the need to apologize or or have to to give that up so i don't know i mean there's just all this you know kind of cultural dynamics mm-hmm. that are going on um both on the surface of the film but also below and in, in, in the context surrounding it and then we look at this film as being what uh, 40 years old now so there's been a lot that's happened um uh, in in our society our moroccan society and even just global uh relations between europe and north america northern africa and, and the middle east so obviously this the film doesn't reach into all of those areas but it certainly stirs up a lot of thoughts about how people get along and how these cultures 
are expected to adapt uh, and and fit into you know the modern and the postmodern world. Well, and there are touches. There is a funeral in this in this, which I believe is of the last uh, king of Morocco, mm-hmm. who died in in the early sixties, and then was put in, put you know who was put on is Hassan the second, who essentially was king of of Morocco from the very early 1960s all the way until 1999 and you know again this is a lot of this is from just looking around this film so I, my apologies if i certainly get something's wrong but you know the the moroccan government was not known for being really you know uh, uh, <laughs> liberal you know, right right k- very restrictive k- very regulated yeah. right all of that mm-hmm. and in particular in the 60s and 70s and into the 80s um, with a lot of political violence and a lot of, uh, I guess, state state violence, not just political, but state right. violence. There were several coups, um, and and they they clamped down on dissidents, um, and that's why watching this was pretty interesting to see how are they skirting this line because apparently King Hassan II really liked this band. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank goodness for them, right? I mean, who yeah. knows what would have happened otherwise? But but it, it definitely they 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 have a sense that they are calling for something that could be somewhat dangerous to someone like King Hassan the second. Right. But at the same time, if you can do that kind of stuff in a way that actually um, upholds the, the conservative government, then, you know, you're just skirting a line there. It is an interesting thing to kind of look at. And this film, I think, you know, gives you hints of it without actually, going there and even even yeah. that essay that i was talking about kind of ends with talking about revolution and these individuals the spectators and i'm like i i mean you know more about this stuff than i do clearly mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. the, the, and at the same time i'm like but i i just clearly they weren't seen that way by their own government who had to have been keeping an eye out well, yeah, you've so, got you've got a bunch of hot-headed, emotionally pumped-up young men all under one roof. Um, yeah, that that is the seedbed potentially of, if not a coup or a you know a revolutionary movement, but certainly mm-hmm. a popular force of resistance or of even skepticism towards what the government's saying. It, it is. It's a fine line. I mean, these these guys have uh, popularity. Um, I can see from a you know a Moroccan uh, ruler's perspective. Well, this is great. They're celebrating our traditional music. They're they're creating awareness of our of our cultural mm-hmm. heritage in the wider world. I mean that that's all a positive thing. You know, unless somehow the ruler is ashamed of it or or feels like we need to just be modern and Western friendly. But I think you know it it, it kind of keeps the people happy. It gives them music. It maybe has a motivational aspect to it. But let's just not take it too far there guys let you know because mm-hmm. you're right some of those grievances are not towards how the west views arabs but it's how arab rulers treat the their subjects you know and 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 how the how the government uh and some of the suffering some of the yearning some of the grievance that comes through in those lyrics is caused by by their neighbors by by people uh amongst them and and so mm-hmm. That's yeah. That that is where oh. the the band has to kind of walk that fine line because if they become a little too populist or a little bit too sharp in their criticism, or they take the veil off, then uh, they're going to run afoul of the <laughs> authorities, regardless of how popular they are. And yet they have an ability to say, let's let's push back, let's let's open things up, let's give 
people some space to breathe. And, and in that sense, they can have a constructive influence on even things like, you know, government policy or maybe how the courts rule or even how public popular attitudes uh, regard self-expression and, and people who maybe press against the limits of, of traditional, uh, you know, expected responses or behaviors. So, you know, it's, it's, it's always that, that tension between modernity and tradition. And we see that happening practically in every society around the world, you know, and including (laughs) our own. And the the scenes that do show those kind of more, I guess, not quite shanty towns, but the mm-hmm. you know the yeah. poor areas of Casablanca, where again this a lot of these folks grew up. Did you know? Does that not look like criticism, or does that look like look what we've been able to do? Because that would have been you know yeah. th- these mm-hmm. that would have been prior to King Mohammed or sorry um, uh, Hassan the Second's um, rule. Right. That they were growing up in those areas, and look at them now. You know, I mean, it, yeah. it, it's an, it, it's just that interesting back and forth over that line. What here is criticism, and what here is appreciation, and and a look at how where we've come from from yeah. our roots, which are poor but noble, and and um, I, I don't know. It was well, it was pretty fascinating to me that, that, that part long, of it. yeah, that long tracking shot, really shot from a, a moving vehicle. Obviously, it goes on for several minutes of just you know, slums and, and shanties and shacks. And I mean, things are really worn down and, and, and beaten. And then you get to the end of that road and all of a sudden now you're into more of a developed place. And so it is kind of a mute mm-hmm. criticism. It's saying, here's what it is. So this is not, this is not going to make your tourist brochures. This is not the Kasbah or the, you know, the, the, <laughs> the beautiful white uh, buildings gleaming in the sun or the ocean surf pounding and, and some of the, you know, truly spectacular uh natural landscapes and artistic and cultural uh you know masterpieces of, of moroccan architecture or any of that this is this is how the common folk live and so you know if you're going to celebrate the band as these ambassadors of moroccan culture through this movie you're going to have to watch and see how people are living uh right on the fringes of, of where this group is performing and this is where the people who are, you know, stomping around in the audience, that's that's where a lot of them live and come from and work and spend their days. And maybe we'll spend the majority of their days living in pretty pretty uh, dismal conditions if you really get right down to it. And again, with, with you know, cross-cultural understanding, um, people in this part of the world can see how people across the Mediterranean live and the, the tidiness of their neighborhoods and the technologies at their disposal and the... You know, relative ease and comfort and convenience of their lives. It's like, why are we not able to have that? Why do we have to live in you know squalor and buildings with no plumbing and piled on top of each other like that? So, yeah, again, just just so much food for thought as we see these cultures kind of you know interacting with each other. Mm-hmm. Well, all right, should we go to a different kind of music, man? Uh... <laughs> Yeah, I think so. I mean, uh, <laughs> let's find out thing if there's any other bits I wanted to to get. Mm-hmm. I, I maybe maybe we've we've covered it here. Well, I guess the fact that this has been released as its own standalone oh, Blu-ray right. is kind of interesting, just because you know I would I would say this to me is not the greatest film in the set. I mean, it, it's it's pretty fascinating, but I and maybe maybe there is a demand out there for this film as a standalone, you know, because they didn't add anything else to the disc, not even 
you know, a new essay or, or anything. Um, so if you buy trances, um, you know, you really don't need to do that if you've got this box set as far as the content. I do have it just because I'm a crazy completionist like that. <laughs> and I also have to give a little nod to Arik Devins, who chose this as his favorite cover of last year when we did our <laughs> Criterion cast episode. And it is, it's a beautiful, it's, yeah, it's a know, great one. Beautiful artwork, very vibrant colors. You get a big poster inside if you're into that kind of thing. So just the fact that uh, this was also the very first film that Scorsese chose to be restored mm -hmm. with, when the World Cinema Project got started. So there's clearly a, a, a sentimental uh, value or attachment uh, on this film. Um, it's it's pretty cool. And, and I guess if you don't want to spring for the whole box, it is good that it is available. But I, I really do kind of wish that they had added something more, maybe even like a follow up. Where are they now? Because I think that would have been yeah. a really fascinating postscript to this film. You know, how did this film impact their careers and uh, and what what else has happened in the Moroccan popular music scene in the decades since? It's interesting because. This is probably, in terms of just pure enjoyment of these films, maybe my least favorite in the entire set. Mm -hmm. I can get but, that, yeah. But it's the one that most made me want to go out and do more learning. Yeah. <laughs> and and yeah. which is a great thing. So so it's not like my least favorite um, you know, experience of the set. It's not a film I think shouldn't be there. Uh, because in many ways, that's that's exactly what I'm looking for with some of this. You know, it wasn't my favorite film to sit down and watch it, it, it can be kind of um, hypnotic in, in a, in, in a way that is, is either good or potentially bad too. You know, if I'm just sitting there, I'm like, Oh, uh, okay. I haven't actually been reading the lyrics for the last five minutes. You know, yeah, <laughs> I don't yeah. know what they've been, what they've been, what they've been singing about in their trancey kind of um, music. Um, but at the same time, like I say, it's the one that opened up the most questions for me of what else is going on with this, partially because of lack of experience in, in any of this. Mm -hmm. um, but also just, I, I was very intrigued by the band and, and how it played out. And I think that's a great thing with music documentaries. You know, some of them are just music documentaries, but others really have an ability to capture a time and place in a culture in a way that you can't do with a normal feature film because it, all they you know, the, all they purport to be doing is capturing a performance or something like that. But yeah. there's so much more behind the scenes and, and behind these characters and behind the, the facades they're putting on as their per personas for their, you know, in, in their band that I was, I was excited that this one did, did that really well as also, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I but, think, I think it's definitely, it prompts curiosity, exploration, it, it you know it's probably some and, and i also appreciate the fact that al manuni did put that sort of historic uh documentary footage in there the, those little black and white clips mm -hmm. uh you know the 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 women bearing their breasts uh, as a kind of a political act of defiance you know as at the end of colonialism so so you definitely do tap into a larger sort of cultural dynamic al manuni presumably figured this film was going to be seen by people who knew like like you and i next to nothing about mm -hmm. moroccan culture this kind of music or the you know recent history of that nation uh while also you know giving something to the fans of this group people who know this group intimately have been listening to their music for years 
uh, you're seeing new dimensions of the group. And it's not just a band biopic, you know, like how cute or how awesome or great mm-hmm. they are. It's like they're, they're saying something meaningful uh, to our times and something that will, you know, have an impact even on the larger history of this region. So, yeah, I think it's a pretty, pretty powerful statement. And, yeah, and when I say, you know, not the greatest film in the set, I think it's still pretty vital and pretty important uh, that it's yeah. here. Obviously, it was a it was a it was a motivator for Scorsese to do this type of work. And obviously, we all benefit immensely from the from the uh, energy he and the initiative that he's taken here uh, to, to get these films uh, into wider distribution. And I wonder if that's why, you know, because I'm with you, it's hard to imagine why this one was chosen to be broken out of the World Cinema box set. And I wonder if some of it was, this is this is Scorsese's favorite. This is the one that's most personal to him. Yeah. Um, but, but at any rate, it, I would have thought a, a, a strong contender would be the next film, particularly with its Bong Joon-ho connections oh, yeah. and with yeah. its just, you know... You, Anyone can latch onto this film and be suitably disgusted and, and intrigued, you know. So yeah. we're talking about the housemaid, uh, the, the housemaid, nineteen sixty. Yeah. yeah, sorry, yeah, ni- nineteen sixty yeah. um, film, the housemaid, uh, directed by Kim Ki Young. This is the only film I've seen by Kim Ki Young, though I really like Bong Joon Ho's uh, little, um, you know, probably fifteen minute interview about. About yeah. this film in particular, but about Kim Ki Young's work in general, saying that if he, if he walked past a television set with some film on, and it was Kim Ki Young's, he'd know it was Kim Ki Young's. You know, mm. this is he's got a, a style, and he's someone that I have looked up to, and not just me, but all of my peers in the '90s were really looking up to him. And and this film is so interesting and shocking, and oh, it's and amazing, crazy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it really is, yeah. But, yeah, and that, but that interview with Bong Joon-ho is from 2013, so it was before mm-hmm. Parasite, but obviously it's going to be hard like, to not talk about Parasite. <laughs> I had the same thought, yeah, yeah. yeah. which I think, I, I even think that I read somewhere that he, he does acknowledge that Parasite owes a bit of a debt to the housemaid. Oh, I think it's, but, you know, I mean, it's it's pretty clearly um, an influence there, and, and, mm-hmm. and um, you know, fascinating that he would make this interview with Criterion in 2013 and then several years later certainly wasn't the next film he made but I think you know Parasite uh you know the Academy Award winner for best picture uh Mm -hmm. you know really established a kind of a new standard there and uh, it really is quite a sensational film um maybe the one that Bong Joon-ho will be most remembered for in the larger world, but, but we'll see what else he has up his sleeve. But yeah, yeah this, this was a quite, a, quite a standout I, to me. It, it doesn't exactly feel out of place because there's not a certain rule that, that these films <laughs> had to follow to, to warrant inclusion in the box set, but it certainly does seem to have a more, um, I don't know, more of a modern sensibility or something about it. Uh, maybe we'll have to sort that out as we, as we begin our discussion. But uh, yeah, this, this was a, a new discovery for me. We've made a couple comments. The fact that I had not seen this one up until just this week when it was time to get ready for this podcast, but I, I regret not getting into it sooner. But <laughs> anyways, I, but uh, yeah, what a, what a remarkable uh, piece of work it is. It's just so unpredictable and, and so sly and so, incredibly sensational and you know hyper dramatic uh almost 
to the point of absurdity in some places mm-hmm. but yeah just a, a really <laughs> a really compelling film I've, i have watched it twice now uh including this morning just to get my second viewing in because i don't typically like doing a podcast on one one take on a movie so mm-hmm. yeah um still yeah still absorbing a lot of it but yeah let's let's go let's let's uh, start let's, let's do this it. <laughs> Well, it's interesting. You say it feels like one of the more more modern ones in the set. It's actually the second oldest. You know, the only film in here that's older is Red Ace from Mm -hmm. the 30s. And then Mm -hmm. you jump all the way to The Housemaid in 1960. It is black and white. Um, And and some of the reels are clearly in rough shape. Yeah, yeah. But, But for the first, you know, I don't know, two or three reels of the film, it looks pretty spectacular and you really can feel like you're just watching some well-preserved film that didn't need any preservation efforts by you know the world cinema foundation but clearly it did in fact i think the version that i watched that was on hulu before this was released was even Mm -hmm. worse and i i remember Mm -hmm. i feel like i remember it having burnt in um subtitles that yeah have been yeah those those missing reels i think i think the um the the booklet kind of explains that they found the original negatives um, in 1990, um, but f- reels five and eight were missing. So there were there are two sections where it very dramatically, you know, the film quality de- deteriorates. There's even a few little jump scenes where certain frames must mm-hmm. have been missing entirely. Uh, those were restored through that that um, uh, kind of a, a first run print of the full film. So they, they, they found that, but it was in pretty tough shape and it did have those burned in subtitles. So they've had to use special software to remove those subtitles and give you the full image. So when I saw that, I also recognized that that might be one reason why this did not get a standalone release. I think I mentioned in the previous episode that I was aware that, you know, there was a pretty strong following and fan base for this film and people who were even a little bit disappointed that did not get a standalone release. And I wasn't sure why that was, but when I saw that they really could not give it a full glossy, you know, high def um, image, then that might've been enough reason right there to say, well, we're going to just make this part of the package, but this really does have a lot going on and maybe there's not enough archival or supplemental material to make it worth standalone, but as we've seen with trances, that doesn't necessarily hold them back from uh, releasing it solo, anyways. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, yeah. How do I don't, how do we want to get into that? I mean, just summarize well, the story and just go. We or... can start with the yeah. the frame. You know, this yeah. is this oh, yeah. is yeah. this is a film that has a lot of um, oh, kind of lurid and horrific uh, moments in it. Oh, for and sure. maybe yeah. maybe a way to tame it. But I also think there's some other sly things going on here. Mm-hmm. Um, the story is told as if it was just something in the newspaper that this, you know, you, you meet the, this main character. He's a, he's a composer, he's a musician. He, and he, you know, as the, when the story goes on, you learn that he and, um, and his wife are kind of moving up into the upper class a little bit, upper middle class. Well, they're striving but to, it's not really coming that to. easy. Right, right. Right. They're, it's, it's, they're not ready for that. Their, their house is still in shambles. They don't have any help. I mean, it, it, they're doing it for the, for the outward appearances, but they don't have mm-hmm. it in. Uh, and so he teaches music at this um, factory. He's a factory, you know, employee really, but the factory is yeah. where a lot of um, young women from the countryside come in to Seoul in order to have jobs when they can't go to school. And so he teaches a, 
a music class where they sing and some of them play the piano just a little bit, but to, to a lot of these factory workers who tend to live on site. Um, but when the film begins, he's at home or, uh, you know, reading the newspaper to his wife and telling her about, Oh, some, some fella here fell in love with his maid and had an affair with his maid. Oh, you know, and they're just a little bit scandalized. Yeah. And then, you know, it kind of shifts around and here we are in the story itself It's almost imagined. A, it's, it's like a nightmare for this couple. Yeah. Um, that at the but end, it's not really they pull clear back away from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The framing, I mean, at least my first time through, it seemed like that story was just continuing. Like he was reading a thing in the newspaper. Right. And then the character himself goes on to have reading about it, almost as if he's blind to the idea that this could happen to you too, rather than this kind of mm-hmm. high horse, you know, what a bum, you know, what, what, what a scoundrel that he would do something like that. So, I, you know, mm-hmm. my first time through the, the ending was like, whoa, <laughs> they, they did that, you know? <laughs> uh, so it is, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty crazy and pretty remarkable, but I didn't really catch that until the end of the first viewing. So we've just kind of thrown a spoiler yeah. there. I suppose. Which but, I guess you can't yeah. either, right? You mm-hmm. couldn't, you couldn't really tell from the, it, it does look right. like maybe this is just some man who, oh, this is going to hit you too. Um, which I guess is kind of part of the point. Uh, but then it does go on and you see he's in there teaching class and all of the girls, of course, are, you know, in love with him and, and want to flirt with him a little bit, including two of them in particular. Um, one of them convinces the other one, hey, you need to leave him a note in the piano so that when he opens it, yeah. he'll read the note. Well, he opens it, reads the note, plays a few bars, gets him to start singing, and then, you know, I guess is sitting there struggling with his morals, um, you know, while they're playing, while he's playing the song, because he eventually stops and says he needs to, needs to leave the room for a minute and goes right to the supervisor, shows the note, and that, that girl gets suspended, uh, the one who wrote the note. Um, meanwhile, the other one, Signs up for music lessons at the guy's house. <laughs> yeah, and, and we find and so, out a little bit later, she's the one who's been driving this whole scheme. She kind of set up yep. her friend to to see how how what would happen. Like, would he follow up on her offer? Presumably the, the note is, uh, you know, saying, I want to get with you or I'm available if you're interested. Oh, you think? I thought it was just, hey, I really appreciate your class and, you know, (laughs) love it when you come. And No, just kidding. (laughs) It had to have been, I mean, it's interesting because it had to have been something worth suspending her for, but I actually don't know the line, where that line would have been for these girls. It really could have been, you do not write a note to this man. Any note. It it could have been, but it also could have been all the way to, hey, you know, um, I'm available. It might have been something in between, just a little bit of flirtation, because the girls do mm. seem somewhat surprised by his response to it, that mm-hmm. that he didn't just take it as um, a little bit of flirtation. Right. Um, well, you know, I think this taps into the rigidity of the Korean society, and I, and I, I will have to say, this is going off of impressions that I have, I... I, I want to be careful that I'm not, you know, engaging in stereotypes or assumptions. So I'm open to correction if I happen to be off on this. But my understanding, especially at this time when, in South Korea coming out of, you know, the, the war situation with North Korea and the fact that, you know, this society was still kind of recovering pretty dramatically from, from some, you know, 
really awful years uh, with lots of mm -hmm. casualties. I mean, one of the reasons that, you know, there may have been this abundance of young women is that a lot of the young men uh, were either tied up in the military because they had to defend against a very active North Korean threat, or they were casualties of the war themselves. So just think about the whole premise here. We've got these young women who are living on site. The, the, this musical social club is kind of uh, sort of a, a concession by the industry to sort of give them a little bit of a social life and a little bit of entertainment, but it's still very rigid. You know, I mean, it's, it's very like large group conformist type of activities where everybody's kind of herded together under supervision, you know, strict behavioral expectations. This feels like a society that's, that's pretty uptight and, and very harsh, moralistic, judgmental, if you get at all out of line. And so that's where I think some of the scandalous aspects of, of this film really boil to the surface because you've got all of this repression, all of this kind of closed off and, and almost maybe living in a little bit of a state of paranoia of, of what's going to happen if your discretions are discovered or indiscretions are discovered. And, and, and that's also involves the upward climb of social respectability mm -hmm. and wealth and having a nice two-story house, not, not just a flat, you know, commonplace, but we've got an upstairs and a downstairs and, and fancy glass windows. And, you know, and, and, and that's another stereotype that's being indulged here is the, the mother of this family, she's materialistic. She wants a television set. She needs to, you know, she wants to have a maid so that that's another status symbol. And so these, you know, these are kind of conventions of what I'm reading to be sort of middle-class Korean moralism, you know, of, mm -hmm. of the father's role, the mother's role, the, the role of the children, you know, one of the, the, the children of the daughter is handicapped. So she has these crutches she needs to use. So, you know, you've got a family that's struggling and there's tensions between the, the mother and the father and in, in their relationship. Then this young woman is brought into the house to do the kind of domestic servant work, which is in some ways an asset to the wife because now she's got a woman that she can order around and do the menial task. But there is the the potential danger of having this, uh, you know, lovely young lady living right there in the household who all she does is her job. She doesn't have the distractions of raising the children in the same way or this wife who's working very hard. She's She's got a little home sewing business that is the kind of, the extra income that they need to, to take that next step. Cause you know, he is, he's a salary man. I mean, he plays the piano. He does have some talent, but he's not like writing pop music. That's going to sell a million records or make him famous. He's very, very mundane and how he puts his piano talents to work. And maybe he'll take on a lesson here or there, but you know, so that that's the kind of the, the, the pot boiler of, of emotions and tensions within this little household. But it's within the context of this society that kind of regiments young people's lives. Like all these women are going to, it's almost like a form of military service. They just happen to be working in a factory, but they wear uniforms. Uh, they don't really seem to have a lot of individual free time. Uh, they're, they're under, under observation, you know, almost around the clock. And that's, mm -hmm. that's just kind of a tough way to live. Yeah. And the, and the music, the musician, he does solicit um, to the, to teach, you know, students, he, mm -hmm. he's willing yeah. to teach, teach them, uh, 
And then he kind of says, because I need the money to make my mortgage payments. I don't think that's exactly yeah. what he says, but you know, he admits it to him and they chuckle because ha, 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 ha. he yeah. must just be making a little bit of a coy joke, but he's actually being exceptionally honest in that moment. Um, if there's one thing about the film that, that works for it, but is also potentially a pitfall, it's how open and honest and morally, you know, clear this man is, but how that has actually made him indecisive, weak, and, you know, unable to actually kind of manage things (laughs) uh, out there. But, you know, he, he does, he does solicit students and gets the one who eventually is the one who introduces the housemaid into the home because he says, look, I need a housemaid for my wife. She's, she's expecting a baby. Um, and she can't do all the work in this two-story house, so we, we need a housemaid. Um, can you find someone for me? And here comes this, you know, uh, Bong Joon-ho even kind of remarks, she did not look like a Korean youth, of you know, typical Korean right. youth of the 1960s. She's got a different face. She's she's definitely got a bit of a, of a unique quality to her, mm-hmm. to her appearance um, that not... I don't know, not a factory worker. <laughs> well, know? no, no, she's she's slim, she's sexy, she's mischievous, she's got that little side-eye thing, she's licking mm-hmm. her lips when she sees, like, a cigarette, and I mean, it, it, she's, she's definitely coding all of the signals of a loose young woman you know mm-hmm. she smokes i mean that that in itself right there is that's kind of her introduction she's literally in the closet smoking when her friend um the, the music student <laughs> you know kind of comes in and, and catches her and yeah i mean i don't know a lot about what young korean women looked like at this time right. especially in in the cinema but she certainly has charisma you she's know, just, striking she stands oh, absolutely out. right right and and <clears throat> just because she is you know she is kind of good to go she is ready to play uh she is frisky i mean that that's just makes her all the more dangerous yeah exactly and, i mean and, and you know that from the get-go mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. that kind of wiliness uh sort of sets her apart i mean i think again looking at maybe traditional standards of korean beauty the housewife is you know elegant but i mean she's not like mm-hmm. super you know refined or what she might call, use today's language like high maintenance but she's she's proper you know she's dressed traditionally and she has all the rights and privileges of a married woman now you know and now here comes this little temptress into our household to to mess everything up and and again you know you talked a little bit about the, about the the husband's indiscretion or or his weakness i that is that is exactly the the the, the tension of this film on his end is like he's got the the duties to you know provide for the family he wants to be responsive to his wife he's hoping for sons because that's a, a prestige thing within that culture to have male heirs and and uh you know so he, he's got to manage all the material side of it his his career which is maybe not really going anywhere it's, it's pretty static and he's also got these this this young woman who's kind of throwing herself at him in the, you know, not the not third one in the film, but, right, right. <laughs> and, and that's the thing. All of his students are these very attractive, you know, prim young women. I mean, they're, but they're all nice. And, 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 and to teach piano does mean you've got, you've put your hands on top of the other girls. You're sitting next to her on the bench. You're leaning in over her shoulder. I mean, these things are all 
especially again in a society that's that's kind of repressed and doesn't show that kind of physical affection and emotion very very freely or routinely uh, this is this is kind of hot <laughs> heavy stuff here you mm-hmm. know um this this guy who's kind of lingering over these these uh tempting young women uh it, it, there is definitely a kind of a, a chauvinistic um patriarchal assumptions and some people are going to you know, possibly take issue with that, but this is very reflective of the cultural mores that uh, Kim Ki Young is is engaged with, and and I think that's another kind of brilliant part of this film is that you could read it as straightforward and upholding of those things because of especially because of the framing device, or it could be seen as a pretty sly and subversive critique of yeah. all of that, and I think that's where each viewer may even bring their own uh, interpretation to the film's ultimate message or impact. Yeah. I mean, I definitely see it that way as subversive Mm -hmm. of, you know, here are his values and look where it's getting him. Um, He's getting, getting nowhere. In fact, his, his, all of his moral values actually seem in place in this film simply to maintain their uh, financial you know, upward mobility. And right. that's it. He's he's not doing it for any other reason. You know, every time... In fact, he goes against what you'd think of as the moral option in order to maintain that, that, um, that status. Some of the reasons that he doesn't turn in the girls is a scandal might affect his standing in the factory or... Right you know, affect his ability to get more students or, and, 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 and the weirdest thing when he finally admits to his wife, and this is fairly early in the film All right. that, Oh, by the way, I've got the, the maid pregnant, you know, um, w- would you, would you still love me if I was a thief? Yes. How about if I murdered someone? Yes. You know, and she's just kind of like going along with it. What if I got someone pregnant? Wait a minute, you know, yeah, and, her and blood I'm freezes. Not, I'm not yeah. trying to, I'm not trying to say she had an inappropriate response, but he right. you know, he does he does admit to her. Well, basically, her first response is, you know, this is terrible. Look what you've done to me, and how are we going to maintain our lifestyle? Yeah, how are we going to cover yeah. this up? That's exactly it. <clears throat> and, the the wife is <clears throat> is is complicit in keeping up appearances, and and that is shown to be the ultimate. Uh, deciding factor here yeah there is the morality of it there is the you know propriety but i mean you know to jump kind of farther ahead in the film yeah i have to do that too (laughs) yeah the the wife basically is willing to give uh, the maid over to her husband and give her husband permission to sleep with the maid in order to prevent the neighbors from finding out it's like wow (laughs) just like in parasite right when you think you might know where this film is going it goes somewhere else, somewhere, oh, uh, somewhere yeah. even crazier. Yep, because yep. now it isn't just that there's this temptress in the house. <clears throat> she is a monster. She is a villain. Oh, she is willing to yeah. poison all of them and the children, and yet they still allow her to make their food. They're just careful now. you know. But they've got the rat <laughs> poison throughout the film. Oh, you yeah, always know yeah. she's going to use it. And and it, it does. I mean, it, it, okay. I mean, here's where it goes. It, it, it does lead to the death of their young son. Yeah, and you're worried about any of their son, or you know the other well, the baby a, and a, the the and daughter. A forced abortion from mm-hmm. dropping There's the woman some... down the stairs. Yeah, I mean it's At... just insane. And yet, yeah. <laughs> again, this is where I find it similar to Parasite. And yet, 
if it's going to help us um, keep this house, yeah, then we're just going to have to learn to live together. <laughs> yeah, that and that's and that that to me, I I, I do agree is that's where the subversive um, motivations seem the most plausible because to imagine any kind of a respectable middle class housewife being willing to go that far just to keep up appearances is it mm-hmm. stretches the the credibility you know but i do yeah. understand that the the popular reception of this film was very much just to view uh, the the housemaid as as this completely detestable villain and that at least in some theaters, audiences were shrieking, demanding that she had to die, you know, and and <laughs> and just buying so much into the fact that this wicked, you know, girl has come into this beautiful middle class home and just ruined everything. I mean, putting all the blame and shame on her because she obviously was so far out of line that she she led the husband and wife to their ruin. You know, <laughs> it's like, well, mm-hmm. I would say there's a lot more. Um, mixed motives going on here and and the the blame is on human weakness in general not in one particularly scandalous woman who caused all of these things to happen because the the man just couldn't help himself you know uh but i mean that that's still a very popular mindset i mean we see that all the time where you know men misbehave sexually and they have their apologists both men and women say well they they were led on or uh, mm-hmm. that's just that's how men are wired you know and uh we just have to accommodate that and, and try to avoid putting them in situations where they may they may act on their natural impulses you know well yeah, yeah. well and the thing that i love about this film is that's exactly what they do here you know yeah. he's able to excuse it because he had just come from the funeral of the first girl who wrote him that letter yeah. And yep. he was just feeling bad. And then the other girl that he's doing the lessons for throws herself at him and says, it was I who actually pushed yeah. her into writing that letter. And and it's pretty, it's a kind of a violent scene as well there. And the housemaid is outside. It's beautifully shot. I love the way that this it, film, it's the an, camera. It's an incredible is, section, yeah. She's just kind of outside listening to this go on. And that's when, you know, after he throws the one girl out, and says, "Oh, by the way, please come back. I need to keep teaching you lessons for the money." <laughs> yeah, know? yeah. Um, she she's ripped her, her <clears throat> bodice there. As she's basically says, "I'm going to threaten that, or I'm going to I'm threatening that I'm going to frame you for rape," and mm-hmm. she tears her clothes. And he knows that she could very easily go and say that, but he still needs some money. And that, wow. and that's where I think the criticism, just those little subtle things where he's, yeah. I'm going to do the right thing and throw you out, but please come back next yeah. week. You know, I mean, that's, yeah. that's the kind of ambivalence that, that there is toward morals in this, but that's where also the housemaid comes in and kind of realizes this is a weak man. Yeah. I can He's have got the my goods way with on this him. guy. Mm-hmm. 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 And I'm, you know, I I don't have a lot of respect for him. You know, I'm put right. in this position. Look at what he's doing to me um, as a subservient person who's just expected to kind of come in and, and do whatever they want, whenever they want, and mind my place, you know. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna do this. Mm-hmm. And that's 
that's where his own weakness is shown, but it's it's portrayed as a moment of weakness that any anyone would would understand. And the wife, oh yeah, goes there too, but but it's not. I mean, it isn't because you, you have to look at it and realize they do that in order to continue on with the life they have. It, it's yeah. just a rhetoric that that helps suit them and gives them license to continue on, and in, in a way that's in many cases you couldn't couldn't go on in this mm-hmm. way unless you had some lies to tell yourself and each other that you're both willing to live with those lies so that you can k- keep going this direction and it's just it's just crazy but <laughs> well well yeah and 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 the whole facade you know certainly proceeds to fall to pieces that but but they've in a sense made an idol out of this um idea that they're going to be kind of ascending to higher levels of, of upper middle class respectability again it's it's about how you are seen it's not even about having the money or or achieving mm-hmm. the thing so that you've got you know abundant resources and influence and prestige in a sort of a, a, a real sense but it's it's again just looking the part you know having a house that's just a little bit in keeping or maybe even ahead of some of your your peers of uh, having the vision or the 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 image of a of a family where mother and father have their handsome children and and everything's tidy and in order you know all of that stuff ultimately is is kind of the driver for for both this husband and wife and i think that maybe tapped into some nerves or or was so accustomed by maybe many of its original viewers that that part didn't even seem unusual like that that they could maybe identify in some sense with that desire to to maintain good appearances and to fit in because uh again that's that's sort of the cultural expectation is that you you are going to prosper and play by the rules and and show the signs of being rewarded as such. Um, so again, I, I, I think that that is where, you know, I as relative novice to Korean cinema, I, I do have to admit, but what I've known about Korean culture and, and you know, certain Korean individuals who've kind of told me a little bit about, about their lives and, and kind of just what I've picked up in the broader culture. Yeah. This, this, um, this desire to, to, proceed to to succeed by fitting in and by being the best at meeting those kind of uh overlying expectations that that's to me feels like that's what this movie is kind of addressing Mm -hmm. both um straightforwardly and also in that kind of more oblique uh subversive angle where you're sort of in on not on the joke but but the exaggeration and and the and the hyperbolic melodramatics of it i mean the way like <laughs> the, the rain pours and the lightning flashes and the thunder sounds hitting the tree <laughs> yeah exactly it's <laughs> at these critical moments almost like the heavens have parted to you know emphasize <clears throat> the the divine judgment or approval or disapproval of what's going on here so it's 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 it it is kind of over the top but i think because the filmmaker uh, is has has the the guts and the kind of the technical chops to to go there and to pull it off successfully that's that's what makes it really impressive i mean the the filmmaking quality the the tracking shots the camera movements that's another thing i think that was that felt unique to this film 
compared to the others. Like you've got some really sort of technically advanced filmmaking going on here um, with a guy who's books are well he he's he's learned how to use the camera he's he he's playing with this the soundtrack and the effects that you know the merging of of sound and 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 image you know can can create in the viewer on this kind of emotional level i mean certainly trances was talking about sound primarily but but image as well this is just in a different application Hmm. of those types of skills yeah, I, I'm glad you brought up sound because the sound in this film is fantastic in <laughs> yeah, two ways. Yeah. The piano has its, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it, it, it lends its way to be its own soundtrack. And when he's playing this mournful song, you know, for the students yeah. or for home, um, it, it fits the mood with the rain going on the window panes outside. It's just lovely. And when the housemaid starts to learn how to play it, she just plays these discordant chords. I mean, oh, it's a yeah, horror yeah. soundtrack, and, yeah, it, and, yeah. it, and yet it's it's the real. You know, it's the um, oh, I can't think of the word right now. Oh shoot, what, well, it's what the sound of it? chaos to me. But what, dissonance well, or, or what? the sound of a when the, when the movie has the the soundtrack is actually what's playing on the screen. Diegetic, uh, diegetic. That's right. Yeah. Versus mm-hmm. non-diegetic sound. I mean, this is a horror soundtrack that's diegetic. You know, yeah. it, it, there he's in there lying in bed with his wife, and they there's this, you know, this yeah, these awful right. sounds. And well, the reveal the like is upstairs. Yeah. yeah. Well, when, when the husband is discussing, well, first of all, there's a neighbor uh, who has a has impregnated uh, another woman, so that's that's scandalous. Kind of a foreshadowing <laughs> of what the wife is going to have to grapple with. So when the husband reveals to the wife that he's gotten uh, another woman pregnant, <laughs> she doesn't know who that is exactly. But the reveal Though she comes... should. I mean, my goodness. Well, she's yeah, been, yeah. She's, but, but she's she thinking, herself has been right. saying to the girl, "Oh, you've got morning sickness." You know, it's like, oh, yeah, geez. yeah, yeah. Kind of naive, but 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 the, the deliberate music, the, those kind of pounding chords is <laughs> mm-hmm. what she hears suddenly. I mean, the timing is just impeccable, <laughs> and you see the the light go on in her eyes. And it's like, no, not her. I mean, like <laughs> the worst possible, you know, right. most tawdry scandal. And that's the other thing too. It's just like you got to be kidding. You really went there. You had you had a fling with the maid, and now she's knocked up. And oh, you know, just <laughs> <laughs> well, it really is kind of like I can't believe this is happening. Right? Yeah. And there's the other part of the soundtrack too, just the sound effects, and in particular, there's the it happens throughout the the movie, but there's the scene where she, the housemaid, is grab grabbing they. They've poisoned themselves by this yeah. point. And she, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. he, um, the music musician is walking down the stairs and she grabs onto his legs at the top and then oh. he pulls her down. <laughs> and as he takes a step, her head keeps hitting the next stair. Right. And it is, it is so awful. Yeah. And it's it this percussive me, thud, mm-hmm. you know, her head is just like, and these are hard wooden yeah. stairs, no carpeting or nothing like that. Yeah, yeah. This is this is like a whited sepulcher. The inside of this house is nothing to the two stories that it shows on the right. outside. Right. But this um, this stairway is you know has been kind of a, uh, you know the oh the, the stairway the is on, a character uh, it, itself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, but but he's pulling her down the stairs and just that thud thud and and the sound is so deliberate and powerful. It just it reminded me of the the part in blood simple, the Coen brothers mm-hmm. debut mm-hmm. where he's dragging the shovel behind him. 
Yeah. And you just, you have that, the filmmaker knowing, I just have to focus on this sound for, a, you know, five seconds and I will have the audience in my hands. And that's kind of how I felt with this scene as he's going down the stairs and pulling her. Yeah. It is, it, this is a filmmaker who knows the tools in his tool belt and knows how to use them to just keep us going. Oh, it's yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's an incredibly vivid, um, pra- practically the climactic scene of the film. I mean, this this beautiful young maid, her her head is upside down, her hair is flowing, the camera is tracking perfectly as she goes down. So it's a on the technical side, you just have to admire the chops to say, yeah, they they nailed that shot. It's really and then and then with the the, the sound effects added in, I don't I don't think they were actually thumping her head on the I stairs. Hope not. I hope not as well. But um, but yeah, just again, really uh, exceptional quality filmmaking. Uh, I guess. This Kim Ki Young had been making features throughout the 1950s. I think that's somewhere in the booklet that says he had made about mm-hmm. eight films prior to this one. I don't know where his career went after that. Um, well, but he had he obviously made, he remade this film two more times. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. That, that so Bong Joon Ho talks well, the, about that that he so, he, mm-hmm. he made the the Woman of Fire and Woman of Fire '82. <laughs> okay and apparently okay. both of them like they call it the the housemaid trilogy oh, but apparently okay. they are very like here's the, here's this is me just reading the plot of woman of fire mm-hmm. the lives of a composer and his wife who live on a chicken farm are thrown into turmoil when a femme fatale joins their household that's woman of fire woman of fire 82 let's see what it says okay really quickly a variation on Kim's classic, The Housemaid. The lives of a composer and his chicken farming wife are thrown into turmoil when a young woman comes to work as a maid. I mean, there's some slight differences, but he's he's telling this again. So that's that's 